Today from the Global Lane, Christians persecuted in Eritrea, some confined to shipping containers and underground prisons, two pastors held for more than 7,000 days. They've never actually even been charged with a crime. They've, they've never had a trial. They've never had a lawyer. They don't know how long they'll be in prison. Donald Trump indicted again, this time in Washington, D.C. What does the future hold for the former president? If this case were brought in southern Indiana, uh, the jury would throw tomatoes at the prosecutor. It looks to me like this jury with this judge is going to convict him. American pocketbooks feeling the pinch. Inflation may cool a bit, but... The prices are never going to go back down to where they were before the inflationary episode took off starting in early 2021. That's just gone. And parents sound the alarm over the books kindergartners and high schoolers are reading in Minnesota. I'm here tonight expressing concerns with the sexually graphic books found in our school. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Persecuted but not forgotten. July 22nd marks 7,000 nights of captivity for two Eritrean pastors imprisoned with an estimated 400 Christians in the East African country. 7,000 nights. That's more than 19 years simply for preaching the gospel. Well, here to explain more about their imprisonment and the plight of Christians in the country, known as the North Korea of Africa, is VOM radio host Todd Nettleton. Todd, some churches and Christians are allowed to worship in Eritrea, but not these pastors. So tell us more. Who are they? Why are they still imprisoned? Well, both of these pastors were part of the full gospel church in Eritrea. Uh, back in 2002, the government called in the leaders of most of the evangelical churches in the country and said, uh, you are closed. No more public services. Uh, these churches and so many others immediately went underground. Uh, and shortly after that, Christians began to be arrested. And these pastors were arrested in 2004. As you say, more than 19 years later, they are still in prison. Uh, and just like the other 400 or so Christians in prison in Eritrea right now, they've never actually even been charged with a crime. They've, they've never had a trial. They've never had a lawyer. They don't know how long they'll be in prison. There is no prison sentence. Uh, they just disappeared into the Eritrean prison sentence, Eritrean prison system. Uh, and now here we are 19 later, they're still there. Now, you've met with uh, Eritrean Christians, so tell us what they've told you about the persecution that they've uh, been forced to endure. You know, one of the amazing things is the faithfulness of our Eritrean brothers and sisters. And they say persecution is not sweet, uh, but it is useful. God is using persecution in that country to purify and to build his church and their ministry goes on. In fact, several years ago, there was a report that the Eritrean government had actually built a new prison, and they were putting all of the Christians in the same prison to keep them from evangelizing other prisoners in other prisons. So uh, they saw this as a way of isolating the Christians, uh, but instead it was bringing them together, allowing them to fellowship with each other. But that tells you that their ministry in prison was going on. They were still sharing the gospel in spite of being in prison. Now, earlier, they were kept in boxcars, uh, railroad cars, uh, uh, also containers, and then also underground. Tell us about that. Yeah, there are Eritrean Christians that have been kept for many months in metal shipping containers. Helen Berhani is probably one of the best known an Eritrean worship leader and singer kept in a metal shipping container. Other Christians have talked about being held in underground prison cells 
with no light, literally 24 hours a day in the pitch darkness. Um, so these are very miserable prison conditions for these two brothers and for other Christians in prison in Eritrea. Todd, I'm sure some people would say, well, how can you possibly compare Eritrea to North Korea? Because no churches are allowed in North Korea other than maybe a few state-run show churches. And at least Eritrea allows Orthodox, Catholic, and Lutheran Christians to freely worship. So how do you respond to that? Well, I, I would point out that even the uh, legally sanctioned churches, like the Orthodox Church, are still persecuted. In fact, the, the patriarch of the Orthodox Church died in custody of the Eritrean government. So that level of control, the, the president of Eritrea, Isaias Efwerki, was educated in China. So he has that kind of a communist background of religion is bad, religion is not to be trusted. And so he is seeking to control or close down every church in Eritrea. And I think that's why we can compare it. The other thing is the long prison sentences and the fact that uh, there is no legal recourse, there is no trial, there is no lawyer. Uh, people just disappear into the prison system, similar to how they do in North Korea. So what can we do to help these pastors and the other imprisoned uh, Christians? Is our government able to do anything about it? Well, I would encourage people to do two things. One is pray, and, and we always say that prayer is the most powerful response that we have to the persecution of our brothers and sisters. In this case, we're also encouraging people to contact the Eritrean embassy and let them know, hey, let these pastors out of prison, let them go. We want them to know this is not something that is happening in secret in the dark. This is something the world is aware of, the world is paying attention to. And so I would encourage people, uh, send an email, send a fax, make a phone call, let the Eritrean government know through their embassy in your country that the world is aware of how they are persecuting our Christian brothers and sisters. And, and what have they said to you, Todd, about the, the power of prayer and what a difference that makes for them, those that have been in prison and are out that you've talked with? You know, I have heard so many amazing stories from Christians in prison of how God's presence is so real to them and such an encouragement to them and how they know that they're being prayed for. One of the things I often pray for persecuted Christians, and I would encourage people to pray for Pastor Haile and Dr. Kuflu, is pray that they'll know they're being prayed for, that the Holy Spirit will reveal to them, hey, right at this moment, right now, somebody is praying for you, because I know that will be an encouragement to them. Okay, Todd Nettleton, host of the Voice of the Martyrs weekly radio program, VOM Radio. Todd, where can they hear the show? VOMradio.net is the website. You can find any podcast service. You can find a local radio station. All of that, VOMradio.net. All across America, thank you for serving the persecuted church, and thanks for being with us, Todd. We appreciate it. You're welcome. It's always good to talk to you, Gary. Donald Trump indicted again, this time over January 6th, and allegations that he subverted the transfer of power to remain in the White House. Special Counsel Jack Smith announced the indictment one day after former Hunter Biden business partner Devin Archer appeared on Capitol Hill to give testimony in a closed-door hearing. Here to provide his insights is former Assistant Federal Prosecutor for Northern California, Attorney John O'Connor. So, John, what do you think? Is it only coincidence that this indictment came after Devin Archer's damaging testimony about Biden family business dealings? Well, I don't think the timing is uh, coincidental, uh, but the indictment was going to come out at some time. And I think uh, uh, Jack Smith propitiously timed this to uh, 
to sort of take the uh, shimmer off of what Devin Archer had said. It seems like it was kind of thrown together at the last minute. Do you think it's a real strong case? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think if this case were brought in southern Indiana, uh, the jury would throw tomatoes at the prosecutor. Unfortunately, it's going to be brought for Trump. It's going to be brought in D.C., and I think he's going to get convicted on this. Uh, it's a long, long indictment. It's 50 pages or so with a mountain of facts. Uh, but my problem with it is they, the indictment seems to say that Trump knew he'd lost the election because other people were telling him that. Well, I think anybody who has a sense of this knows that Trump truly believed he won the election. So did he think he was false in uh, claiming that he'd won? I don't think so. However, the way the statute's written, if one corruptly tries to obstruct uh, a proceeding, you're guilty under uh, USC 181512. And it looks to me like this jury with this judge is going to convict him. Well, he's using the First Amendment free speech defense, but he's also, it's a matter of belief, is it not? That's kind of tough to prove legally, isn't it? What he believed? Well, Yes, but the indictment is full of people telling him he lost, number one. But the real problem with the indictment from Trump's perspective is that he put forth an alternative slate of electors. The prosecution calls these fake electors. If the jury buys the idea that there was something inherently false about offering an alternative slate of electors, then that's all you need to say that he was misleading in trying to obstruct this uh, proceeding. So there's no chance he could get a change of venue on this, saying that he could not have a fair trial? I don't think so, because everyone's going to know about this in the United States, throughout the United States. They'll just have different opinions on it. And the judge has to agree to that. And I don't think the judge is going to do that. This is a great opportunity. She's an Ob uh, Obama appointee. It's an interesting case. I think uh, she will not grant a change of venue. So how is Trump going to get beyond all of this? Uh, he has three cases against him. At least one more indictment is possible. How does he get beyond it, John? I don't think he does. I mean, I think this case, because you don't have the classified documents as you have in Mar-a-Lago, that this case will go to trial earlier. You don't have all those uh, national security concerns about the documents. So I think this case will be tried before the end of the year. So in my view, he will get convicted and arguably wrongfully uh, before the end of 2023, whereas the really strong case against him is the obstruction counts in the Mar-a-Lago indictment. That won't go forward till the earliest May of 2023. Uh, so that's the one that really has some troubling facts in it, in my view. Uh, but he's going to get convicted in late 2023. He'll get convicted in May of 2024 or a little bit after. And this is going to have a, a, a very, very chilling effect on the elect election process, on the primary uh, concept. Uh, I think that uh, he'll get the nomination, but I think these indictments will hurt him in the general with the middle part of the uh, voting uh, populace. Well, and Joe Biden has his own problems. Devin Archer testified saying that Biden participated in at least 20 phone calls with foreign businessmen who are working deals with his son, Hunter. Now, Democrats say on Capitol Hill, they said conversations were 
only an exchange of pleasantries. They were only talking about the weather and so forth. What do you think? Well, first of all, the whole notion of these uh, calls is, is that Hunter can get his dad uh, on the phone at the snap of the fingers. That implies influence. You get, you get the vice president on the line 24 times, you've got some influence. And that's what, and Archer said that they were peddling the quote, illusion of, uh, of influence. In fact, one would say they're selling the perception of influence. And guess what? Well, you also have acts by Biden that seem to help Hunter's clients. Now you put those two things together and you also have some evidence, it may not be dead bang, but you have evidence that Joe was benefiting financially from it. Certainly his son was. So it certainly looks like influence peddling and it looks like uh, Joe's in on the deal. Well, so it, it looks like we could end up with uh, our former president in prison and uh, our current president uh, impeached. I mean, what's going to happen here? What do you think? Well, the, the Republicans won't impeach him. They know they'll never remove him. And if they impeach him, they're just going to invoke sympathy. The press will be outraged at this. They'll say it's just a partisan hit job. So I think it's best that they do maybe an impeachment inquiry, which is just an extended investigation, uh, and let the uh, jury of public opinion decide his guilt. I think it is pretty clear, at least by a civil standard, by civil standard, I mean, a preponderance of the evidence. I think the preponderance of evidence would be that Biden was in on the deal and was allowing his son to sell his influence while Joe was profiting from it. Uh, so I, I think that's the best they can do. And I think that's the right way to do it. Uh, impeachment would be too burdensome and time consuming at this late stage of the in the day. Okay, I know you're keeping a close eye on it all. We are too. Attorney John O'Connor, always good to talk with you, John. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Good talking to you. American consumers are still feeling the pinch of inflation. They're paying about 20% more for essential items than they did just two years ago. Although consumer prices rose at a rate of only 3% in June, the Federal Reserve last week raised the interest rate once again to 5.5%. That's the highest in 22 years. Is that action enough to give consumers relief from higher prices and avert a recession? Well, joining us to provide some insights is Young Voices commentator, Associate Professor of Economics at Texas Tech University, Alexander Salter. Good to talk with you again, Alexander. So starting about 24 years ago, the Fed raised the interest rates six times within a 12-month period, and the nation ended up in a recession for most of 2001. So will recession be averted this time because of the Fed's aggressive action? What do you think? Never say never, but I'm not terribly worried about a recession right now. Even as inflation is coming down, the employment numbers still look strong. Now, you probably have some reservations about the labor force participation rate, which is still a little low, the number of disability claims, which are still pretty high. But overall, what I think we're seeing is a pushback against the narrative that you have to engineer a recession in order to bring inflation down. It can be done gradually. And some would even say that the central bank has already gone too far. I'm not among them. I think that this is the course that we want to see going forward. I don't think that a recession is in our future. Well, it appears the raising of interest rates has cooled inflation a bit, so still Americans are paying a lot more. 
for just about everything than they did about two years ago. So are we going to see higher inflation or do you think inflation will cool down even more? The prices are never going to go back down to where they were before the inflationary episode took off starting in early 2021. That's just gone. The Federal Reserve is not going to be willing to engineer outright deflation to return prices to their pre-COVID-19 trend. What we can do is get inflation back to its long-run trajectory of about 2% every year. That tends to be a rate consistent with markets being able to allocate capital to maximize economic growth. And gasoline prices, Alexander, have jumped tremendously in recent weeks. Is that because there's greater demand with summer vacations and travel, or is something else at play here? I don't see that as a monetary policy effect. I do think that that's reflecting specific economic factors that are about the energy market, the gasoline market. As you noted, it's a big travel season. It's summer. People want energy because they want to go places and do things. You usually see big seasonal spikes in demand about this time. It's not something that I'm overly concerned about inflation-wise. Now, of course, that's going to pinch the wallets of American households. It always does. But really, there's not a whole lot we can do about that. Supply and demand are still king. How about, how about energy independence? Reverting to that. Energy independence would be nice. And I am not happy about the trajectory that U.S. energy production has taken under the current administration. I think a lot of good could be done for the American economy and in terms of preserving America's position geopolitically, strategically, vis-a-vis -vis some of the nations that are hostile to American interests if we reverted to the kind of energy policy that we had under the previous administration. Well, as the Biden administration pushes clean energy and electric vehicles, I saw where Ford Motor Company just announced its electric division will lose $4.5 billion this year. So why is that happening? Politically allocated capital never works out well. It's just something that doesn't have a whole lot of sustainability to it because, again, that capital is being allocated not based on economic fundamentals, but based on political whim. I'm all for renewable energy. I'm all for a cleaner economy. But we have to do this in a sustainable way in a manner that doesn't force Americans to take sudden and unexpected cuts to their standards of living. And we have to do it in a way that preserves America's position internationally against our strategic rivals. And right now, this administration is just not doing that. Well, you also had mentioned a little bit about uh, employment and job opportunities. Uh, what do you see happening there? More jobs than people to fill them? Or will we see the labor market tighten in the months ahead? It's possible the labor market will tighten in the months ahead. I'm going to project that we're going to keep on seeing the kinds of openings that we've been seeing recently. The unemployment rate appears to be holding steady. I don't see huge pressure on wages right now. In fact, wages just really caught up to their pre-pandemic trend in terms of purchasing power. Unfortunately, for the last two years, most Americans have taken a real, meaning inflation-adjusted wage cut because of the policies of the federal government, especially the Federal Reserve. I think now labor markets look pretty healthy, and I'm going to project an increase, a continuation of those economic trends. There's going to be openings. There's probably going to be people who want workers that can't find them. Insofar as that results in anything, that should actually have wages going up a little bit, which should be going, uh, should uh, help American households. Okay, well, things look pretty good then, at least uh, better than they have been in recent months. Dr. Alexander Salter, Associate Professor of Economics at Texas Tech and Young Voices Commentator. Thank you for setting us straight today. We appreciate it. That was my pleasure. Thank you. What in the world is happening in Maple Grove, Minnesota?
The state's 11th largest city seems a good place to live and raise a family. Plenty of green space and outdoor activities, a good quality of life in suburban Minneapolis. High schoolers there utilize the latest computer technology to learn graphic engineering. But Natalie Sonic, who has two daughters attending Maple Grove High School, took a closer look at one of the books in the high school library. It's What Girls Are Made Of. The contents shockingly portray explicitly, graphically, the sexual exploits of a promiscuous 14-year-old girl. We won't share most of the book's text with you, but when Natalie Sonic attempted to read some of the graphic details at a recent school board meeting, she was interrupted. Her microphone was cut off. Here's a portion of that exchange. And then I watched Seth roll. I'm going to interrupt you for a minute. I'm yes. sorry. Um, last month, we had some kids in the audience, and some of the um, language was offensive to some. <laughs> okay, that's exactly it. So I think we should continue, Jackie, because that's exactly my point. Mrs. Sonic's school board presentation came on the heels of a school complaint last May, where another Maple Grove parent read from the book, Call Me Max which was given to teachers to read to kindergartners and first graders. When a baby is born, a grown-up says, it's a boy or it's a girl. If a brand new baby could talk, sometimes that baby might say, no, I'm not. When a baby grows up to be transgender, it means that the grown-up who said they were a boy or a girl made a mistake. Folks, these material types are being distributed in public schools across the country. Our teachers need to spend more time helping our kids to read and write, not encourage five-year-olds to begin questioning their biological sex. No, I'm not advocating Nazi-style book burnings, but we need to do what we can to protect the hearts and minds of minors. There'll be plenty of time for them to make their own choices about sex once they reach adulthood. Let's safeguard their innocence. They're only children for such a short time in their lives. And let's remember the words of Jesus, who said in Matthew 18, 6, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Parents, teachers, administrators, school board members, let's do all that we can to avoid those millstones. Well, that's it from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.